Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 3, A New Kind of Leader In June 632, Muhammad passed away. For the Muslims, he was not just a spiritual leader, but a teacher, commander, helper, and trusted friend. Despite uniting Arabia under him, Muhammad never made detailed plans for succession, so his death shocked the Muslim community. The lack of a consensus among the Muslims would sow the seeds for future conflict. I mentioned in the last episode that within the Islamic community, there were two types of Muslims. First, there were the Muhajirun, or emigrants, Muslims who converted in Mecca and then emigrated to Medina to flee persecution. Second, there were the Ansar, or helpers, Medinans who agreed to shelter and provide for the Muhajirun. Immediately after Muhammad's death, the Ansar assembled in the Saqifa, or courtyard, of the Banu Sayyidah clan, attempting to elect the next leader of the Islamic community without allowing Muhajirun any say in the matter. However, two of Muhammad's closest companions, Abu Bakr and Umar, learned of the secret meeting and headed to the Saqifa. What followed was an intense theological debate over whether a member of the Ansar or Muhajirun deserved to become the next leader. The Ansar reminded the Muhajirun of their service to Islam by allowing the Muhajirun to settle in their city. The Muhajirun countered that the Arabs would never accept a leader that did not belong to the Quraysh, since they believed that the Quraysh was the superior tribe. Abu Bakr then grabbed Umar and another companion, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, by the hand and invited the Ansar to pledge allegiance to either of them as the next leader. One of the Ansar made a counteroffer, suggesting that both the Ansar and Muhajirun elect their own leaders that would rule jointly. Unfortunately, a vicious shouting match ensued, and the voices were growing louder and louder. The chance for a compromise was becoming less likely. It seemed that Muhammad's vision of unity was unraveling. Something had to be done. So Umar asked Abu Bakr to stretch out his hand. Abu Bakr complied, and the Muhajirun swore allegiance to Abu Bakr, and the Ansar eventually followed suit. Umar's quick thinking had saved the Islamic community from devolving into factions, though the meeting may not have ended smoothly, as Umar entered a brawl with one of the Ansar. Why did Umar admire Abu Bakr so much that Umar chose him as the next leader? Well, let's look at Abu Bakr's life up to this point, as well as his characteristics, in order to determine why Abu Bakr was worthy of taking Muhammad's place. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was born in Mecca in 573 CE, making him two years younger than Muhammad. Like Muhammad, Abu Bakr was a member of the Quraysh tribe, and in fact, they shared the same lineage. Even during the decadent Jahiliya period, Abu Bakr, like Muhammad, was an ideal character. He was quiet, honest, and sincere. In fact, as-Siddiq means the truthful. It was said that he was a soft-hearted man and keenly felt other sufferings. Before he embraced Islam, Abu Bakr was a merchant, and because of his honesty and status within the Arab world, people left their money with him for safekeeping, allowing him to become a rich trader. Abu Bakr's experience in commerce allowed him to gain quite a bit of knowledge. Members of the Quraysh would often seek him for advice. Even before embracing Islam, Abu Bakr privately abhorred many of the pagan customs and traditions. There's one story that best captures Abu Bakr's attitude towards idol worship. When he was a teenager, he approached an idol and asked it to feed him. Nothing happened. Then he asked the idol to clothe him. Nothing happened. So Abu Bakr chucked a rock at the idol and knocked it down. It is no wonder that Abu Bakr became Muhammad's best friend and most loyal supporter. Shortly after the deaths of Khadijah and Abu Talib, 
Muhammad told the public that he had been carried from Mecca to Jerusalem, and from there, he ascended to heaven. This was Muhammad's night journey, I forgot to talk about it last time. Naturally, the Quraysh didn't believe him, but even some Muslims were skeptical. Abu Bakr fervently believed Muhammad's story. During the Hijra, only Abu Bakr had the honor of traveling with Muhammad. Abu Bakr even made extensive preparations for their escape from Mecca, such as purchasing two camels. During many of the battles in Muhammad's campaigns, such as Badr and Uhud, Abu Bakr was there. When Muhammad was on his deathbed, it was Abu Bakr who led the community in prayer. And when Muhammad died, Abu Bakr delivered a short sermon that lifted the Muslim spirits, bringing solace to what would have been otherwise a mournful population. Few Muslims had such an important position within the community as Abu Bakr. There was, however, one important exception, Ali. Ali was not present at the Saqifah when Abu Bakr was chosen as the next leader. Instead, Ali was washing Muhammad's body. The sources agree that Ali conceded the election, perhaps to promote unity, but they disagree on when Ali conceded and how willing he was to concede. Some say that Ali conceded only a few days after the election, while others say that it took as long as six months, during which Ali was pressured by radicals. These tensions would eventually lead to the emergence of the Sunni and Shia sects. Sunnis believe that Abu Bakr's succession to Muhammad was legitimate, while Shias believe that Ali was a legitimate successor to Muhammad. For now, though, the divide wasn't that deep. One political question that had to be answered was what kind of leader Abu Bakr would become. Rather than becoming a king or emperor, Abu Bakr adopted the title of Khalifa, or Caliph. Abu Bakr became the first of what would become known as the Rashidun, or Rightly Guided Caliphs. The state that Abu Bakr ruled was called the Rashidun Caliphate. The word Caliph means deputy or successor, so the idea seemed to be that Abu Bakr was supposed to continue what Muhammad started. It's kind of like what happens when a president dies and the vice president takes his place. But what exactly is a caliph? What were his powers? I'm sure these questions will resurface in later episodes, but before I continue, since I started writing this episodes around the 4th of July, I thought of the formation of the caliphate as being somewhat similar to the formation of the United States presidency. The founding fathers struggled to determine the president's constitutional powers, and even after George Washington's first inauguration, some presidential traditions were still being defined. Similarly, Abu Bakr's actions would determine the caliph's role and powers within Muslim society. Despite coming from completely different backgrounds, the United States and Russian Caliphate have something in common. Food for thought. The role of the caliph would be influenced by Abu Bakr's personality. By the time he became caliph, Abu Bakr was a small, aging man with deep-set eyes and a pronounced stoop. As I already said, he was gentle and soft-hearted, so much so that he was easily moved to tears. As the Muslims gathered to give an oath of allegiance, Abu Bakr delivered the first speech of his reign, in which I believe deserves to be directly quoted. He declared, O people, I have been given authority over you, yet I am not the best of you. If I do well, give me your support, and if I do wrong, set me right. Truth is loyalty, and lying is treachery. Obey me as long as I obey Allah and his messenger, and if I disobey Allah and his messenger, you owe me no obedience. Abu Bakr was not necessarily projecting an image of strength, but he brought something else to the office, empathy and compassion for his people. Yet strength would be necessary, as military activity would continue during Abu Bakr's reign. In the middle of May 632, an ailing Muhammad had ordered a large expedition for an invasion of Jordan, and he chose Usama ibn Zayd to lead it. While Usama ibn Zayd was the son of Zayd ibn Haritha, 
Muhammad's ex-slave who lost his life in the Battle of Mutah, his appointment was controversial. Usama was a commoner and he was only 22 years old at the time, yet he was placed in command over much older and more distinguished warriors. However, Muhammad's intentions were clear. Usama was to avenge the death of his father. This was the last expedition ordered by Muhammad, because one month later, Muhammad fell ill and died, which stalled the expedition for quite some time. The day after he became caliph, Abu Bakr issued instructions for Usama's army to move out. Then, disastrous news arrived in Medina. A number of Arab tribes were beginning to revolt, and some even persecuted and killed innocent Muslims. Some tribes even turned to false prophets for guidance. A group of prominent Muslims advised the caliph not to dispatch Usama's expedition. After all, the Muslims were few compared to the vast number of rebels. In addition, they suggested that Usama was too young and inexperienced. But Abu Bakr was determined to execute Muhammad's orders, no matter what cost. Usama's army broke camp and marched north on June 24, 632. Usama led a successful expedition that proved that the Muslim army could still score victories even without Muhammad's inspirational leadership. During the reign of Abu Bakr, before he dispatched a Muslim army, Abu Bakr would provide instructions that served as a code of conduct in war. Abu Bakr forbade, among other things, mutilating the enemy's dead bodies, killing the elderly, children, or women, slaughtering animals except for nutritional purposes, and attacking people in centers of worship. Thus, the caliphate was trying to avoid violence whenever possible during military operations. Despite Usama's success, Far greater problems were emerging much closer to Medina, and in order to fully understand the situation, I have to wind back the clock a bit. Muhammad's campaigns had brought the majority of the Arabian tribes into the fold of Islam. Some of these tribes accepted Islam because they became true believers, but others merely accepted Islam to gain some benefit in the new order. This meant that the vices associated with the Jahiliya were not totally abandoned. Shortly after Abu Bakr became caliph, apostasy spread among all Arabian tribes, with the exceptions of the tribes inhabiting Mecca, Medina, and Taif. In some cases, entire tribes apostatized, while in other cases, portions of tribes retained their Islamic beliefs. This widespread wave of apostasy would lead to the Ridda Wars, or Wars of Apostasy. The apostates concentrated in two areas near Medina, Abraq, 70 miles northeast of Medina, and Zuqiza, 24 miles east of Medina. A couple weeks after the departure of the army of Usama, a delegation from Zuqiza came to Abu Bakr. They offered to continue conducting prayers, but they refused to pay taxes. Abu Bakr retaliated that he would fight any tribe that withheld taxes. However, perhaps in a last-ditch effort to avoid war, Abu Bakr sent envoys to all the apostate tribes, inviting them to re-embrace Islam and pay their taxes. That didn't work. After returning from Medina, the delegation from Zuqiza told their comrades about Medina's lack of manpower. After all, the main Muslim army was marching north with Usama. The apostates at Zuqiza decided that it was the perfect time to strike at Medina. During the third week of July 632, they moved from Zuqiza to Zuhusa, which was closer to Medina, and transformed it into a base. Abu Bakr received intelligence of this movement and scrambled to prepare Medina's defenses. As it turned out, the apostates had overestimated Medina's vulnerability. Quite a few warriors from the Bani Hashim were still in Medina mourning the loss of Muhammad. Abu Bakr assembled these warriors into a ragtag army. Abu Bakr ordered the warriors to sally out of Medina, and they drove the apostates back to Zuhusa. 
The following day, Abu Bakr arrived with pack camels since the main riding camels left with Usama's army. The Muslim force advanced to Zuhusa, but as they were trying to climb a slope, the apostates ambushed them from the other side, and the panic-stricken Muslim force was forced to retreat all the way back to Medina. However, during the night, Abu Bakr reorganized his army and launched a surprise attack on the apostates shortly before dawn, capturing Zuhusa. On July 30th, 632, Zuhusa would fall to the Muslims. The Muslim situation improved even more when, on August 2nd, the triumphant army of Usama returned to Medina. Not only did Usama bring back more manpower, but captives and wealth as well. Medina had weathered its greatest storm, though the Ridda Wars were just getting started. While the army of Usama rested and re-equipped, Abu Bakr led the remaining Muslim forces to Zuhusa. During the second week of August 632, Abu Bakr attacked and captured the second apostate stronghold at Abraq. With his initial objectives completed, Abu Bakr returned to Zuhusa to reorganize his forces and devise a campaign strategy. Abu Bakr's forces and the army of Usama were molded into the Army of Islam. Abu Bakr divided the Army of Islam into 11 corps, with each corps given a specific mission and its own commander. Abu Bakr's overall strategy was to take on every enemy force at roughly the same time. By now, the Caliphate had changed Abu Bakr, as the gentle, mild-mannered ruler proved to everyone that he could get tough if he had to. But Abu Bakr was still Abu Bakr, and he issued instructions to each corps regarding treatment of apostate tribes. These instructions were intended to avoid unnecessary warfare. The instructions were as follows. 1. Contact the tribes that were assigned. 2. Deliver the Adhan, or call to prayer. 3. If the tribe responds to the Adhan, ask the tribe to submit and agree to pay taxes. Those who fully submit will not be attacked. 4. If the tribe does not respond to the Adhan or agree to pay taxes, they will be attacked. 5. Any apostates that have harmed Muslims will themselves be harmed. Since there were, in theory, 11 different operations happening at the same time, Covering the Ritter Wars will be no easy task, so I'm going to focus on the most formidable enemies. First up, Tuleha ibn Kuwailid, chief of the Bani Asad tribe and nicknamed the Impostor. Tuleha had initially opposed Islam and even fought against Muhammad at the battles of Uhud, the Ditch, and Kaybar. During 631, the year of delegations, the Bani Asad offered submission to Islam, and Tuleha decided to go along with its tribe. However, Tuleha styled himself as a soothsayer, claiming to foresee the future. A few days before Muhammad's death, Tuleha proclaimed that he was a prophet, and he attempted to take religion into his own hands. Tuleha abolished prostration, an integral part of Islamic prayers. At Buzika, Tuleha received support from the tribes of north-central Arabia and even integrated remnants of the apostates driven from Abraq. Khalid ibn al-Walid's objective was to defeat Tuleha, so he set up from Zuhusa towards Buzika with 4,000 men, gaining warriors along the way. By the time he reached the plains of Buzika, Khalid had 6,000 men. It is unknown how many men were in Tuleha's army, but it was clear that the apostates outnumbered the Muslims. The Battle of Buzika was fought in the middle of September 632. While Khalid led his troops in person, Tuleha sat in a tent a short distance from the battlefield, hoping to receive divine guidance on the conduct of battle. Khalid started the battle by launching an attack along the entire front, and after some time passed, he was able to drive a wedge between the center. For a long time, Tuleha never received any revelations. Finally, as the apostate line was close to breaking, Tuleha announced that he received a divine message that this was a day his followers will not forget. 
The apostates realized that their commander was a big, fat liar, and turned away from the fight. The apostate opposition collapsed. Tuleha fled to the Syrian border, and upon learning that the Bani Assad rejoined Islam, he too became a Muslim, for good. After the Battle of Buzika, Khalid sent out columns to finish off the remaining apostates. One group of apostates surrendered without a fight at Ruman, a hilly region 30 miles southeast of Buzika. Another group of apostates were defeated by Khalid at Gamra, 60 miles away. Next, Khalid moved towards Nakra, where certain members of the Bani Sulaim tribe were still hostile. The Battle of Nakra resulted in another victory for Khalid. While these battles were being fought, there were a number of neutral tribes and clans, such as the Bani Amir and parts of the Hawazin and Bani Sulaim. The Rashidun Caliphate's victories at Buzika, Gamra, and Nakra convinced many neutral tribes to submit. Khalid, however, would refuse to accept their submission until they handed over everyone who persecuted Muslims. The tribes complied, and Khalid's justice was swift and merciless. He ordered every murderer to be killed in the same way that they killed Muslims. After staying at Buzika for three weeks, Khalid turned towards his next enemy, Salma, the daughter of the chief of the Gatfan tribe. Salma had assembled an army at Zafar. During the Battle of Zafar, fought in October 632, Khalid managed to push back the enemy wings, but the enemy's center would not budge. Salma personally conducted the battle on a camel in her army's center, and Khalid realized that she was the linchpin. He led a handful of warriors and pierced the enemy's center, making a determined thrust towards Salma's camel. Salma was killed, and the apostate resistance collapsed following the death of their leader. Only one apostate leader in the region remained, Malik ibn Nuwayira, chief of the Bani Yarbu, a contingent of the powerful Bani Tamim tribe. Muhammad had appointed Malik as an officer over the Bani Hantala clan, making him a tax collector, but when Muhammad died, Malik simply returned the money to the taxpayers. Malik had apostatized, but he did not proclaim himself a prophet. That was where Saja came in. Saja was a clairvoyant and was such an expert poetess that almost everything she said was in verse. When apostasy was spreading, Saja, annoyed that all self-proclaimed prophets were men, proclaimed herself a prophetess. In June 632, Malik and Saja entered an alliance. After finishing with Salma, Khalid gave orders to march to Buta, Malik's main city. During the first week of November 632, Khalid arrived at Buta but found no enemy force. As it turned out, Malik was not brave enough to face Khalid, and he totally caved. Attempting to redeem himself, he sent to Khalid all the taxes that he owed. Khalid accepted the tax, but deemed it insufficient. Malik was tracked down and executed, and Khalid married his widow, Lila, on the same night. Some Muslims suspected that Khalid had only murdered Malik in order to have Lila for himself. Abu Bakr's opinion on Khalid was unchanged, but Umar detested Khalid as a result of this event. Now for the most formidable enemy, Musaylama, infamously nicknamed the Liar. Musaylama belonged to the Bani Hanifa tribe, one of the largest Arabian tribes who inhabited the region of Yamama. He belonged to his tribe's delegation that submitted to Islam, and Musaylama himself personally met Muhammad, but when he returned to Yamama, he publicly proclaimed that Muhammad wanted to share the prophethood with him. Musaylama's fellow tribesmen thought that he was a real prophet, since it was said that Musaylama was able to perform magic tricks, such as fitting an egg inside a bottle, and cutting the feathers off a bird, and then somehow reattaching them so that the bird could fly again. This all happened when Muhammad was still alive. Yamama was too far away for a military operation, so rather than raising an army, Muhammad sent a man to curtail Musaylama's influence. When the man met Musaylama at Yamama, 
He declared that Musaylama was a prophet and switched sides. With Muhammad's death, Musaylama's control over the Bani Hanifa became complete, and he started making his own rules. To bolster his status among the apostates, he married Saja, who had fled to him after Malik's defeat, and as a wedding gift to his people, he abolished the morning and night prayers, reducing the number of daily prayers from 5 to 3. In October 632, Saja decided that she was done with prophethood, and lived in her mother's tribe in modern-day Iraq, where she would remain in obscurity. Abu Bakr had ordered Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jal that had converted to Islam after Muhammad's conquest of Mecca, to advance against Musaylama. But since Abu Bakr recognized Musaylama's power, he ordered Ikrimah not to engage until Khalid ibn al-Walid arrived. Ikrimah, however, was fearless and impatient. He received news that Abu Bakr had sent Shurabil ibn Hassanah with another corps to reinforce him, but Ikrimah possessed a desire to defeat Musaylama on his own and get all the glory for himself. Before Shurabil's reinforcements arrived, Ikrimah attacked Musaylama but was defeated. Abu Bakr was irate. He ordered Ikrimah to bypass the Yamama and march to Oman. Abu Bakr ordered Shurabil not to engage Musaylama until Khalid arrived, but Shurabil attacked anyway and was defeated. Khalid was still some distance from Yamama when he learned from his scouts that Musaylama was encamped in the plain of Akraba along the road leading to Yamama. Khalid left the road and moved south, encamping at the local high ground and linking up with Shurabil's men. The Muslims were now 13,000 strong, while Musaylama had 40,000 warriors. The two sides met on the plain of Akraba in the third week of December 632, beginning the Battle of Yamama. Up to this time, Musaylama had won all confrontations against the Muslims, giving his side an aura of invincibility. For the first time, instead of forming his men in tribal groups, Khalid formed his men into wings and regiments. Khalid's strategy, as usual, was to launch an immediate attack and keep his opponent on the defensive. Musaylama was hoping that he could withstand and then counter Khalid's attack. Khalid opened the battle by launching an attack on the entire front, but the apostates held firm. After much time spent in hard slogging, the Muslims lost their cohesion, and this time, Musaylama launched an attack. Musaylama's numerical superiority forced the Muslims into a retreat. The Muslims even fled past their camp. Khalid needed to do something to prevent this retreat from becoming a rout. The apostates stopped at the Muslim camp for some time, looting and smashing what they could. Khalid realized that the Muslims had fared badly thus far because he was not organizing his armies into clan and tribal units. He reorganized his army, but this time, he kept tribes and clans together so that each man would be fighting not only for Islam, but for his tribe or clan. Khalid picked a handful of warriors to form his personal bodyguard. The Muslims returned to the battle, but they were still making little progress. Khalid realized that only with the death of Musaylama could the spirits of the apostates be broken. He announced his intention to duel, and several apostate champions accepted Khalid's challenge, but Khalid killed each one, slowly making his way towards Musaylama. Khalid proposed talks, and Musaylama agreed, but Musaylama would not come to terms. Khalid lost his patience and attempted to slay Musaylama, but Musaylama escaped back to the safety of his troops. When Musaylama was once again safe, his flight disgraced him in the eyes of the apostates. Because the apostate spirits were broken, their front broke into pieces. Only a fourth of Musaylama's original army retreated in good order due to a successful but ultimately doomed rearguard action. This small force retreated across the plain of Akraba to a walled garden, soon to be called the Garden of Death. Unfortunately, the Muslims had no siege equipment, yet they wanted to finish the battle before nightfall. One warrior, named Barah ibn Malik, had a crazy idea. 
He insisted that his comrades throw him over the wall and that he open the gate inside, although it was almost certainly a suicide mission. However, the plan worked, and the Muslims poured into the garden, beginning the final stage of the Battle of Yamama. Musaylama fought until he was struck in the belly by a javelin. When the battle reached its bloody conclusion, 21,000 apostates were slain, while there were only 1,200 Muslim casualties. The Rashidun Caliphate's victory at the Battle of Yamama marked the beginning of the end of the apostasy movement. The Pact of Surrender was signed by Khalid and Muja'a ibn Marara, a representative of the Bani Hanifa who was taken captive during the battle. The Rashidun Caliphate took possession of the gold, swords, armor, and horses in Yamama, while half the population of Yamama would be enslaved. However, when Khalid approached the city, he saw a number of warriors on the battlements with weapons and armor. Muja'a informed Khalid that they would agree to surrender the fort if the victorious Rashidun army would not enslave any of them. Khalid agreed, and both sides signed a pact acknowledging the terms they discussed. However, when Khalid rode into the city, he realized that the so-called warriors he saw were actually women dressed in armor. Khalid had been tricked. However, despite his obvious frustration, Khalid still respected the terms of the pact. The Rashidun army almost always honored treaties and kept its promises. Within the next five months, the Rida Wars would be essentially over. Amr ibn al-As was sent towards the Syrian border and achieved limited success. Following the Battle of Yamama, Shorabil and his corps marched north to reinforce Amr, and their combined forces were able to strike the decisive blow. Northern Arabia belonged to the Rashidun Caliphate once again. In Oman, a man named Dultaj revolted after Muhammad's death and Abu Bakr initially ordered another corps commander, Hudayfa ibn Misan, to deal with the situation, but he lacked the forces to fight Dultaj. Only with the arrival of Ikrimah's corps did Hudayfa have the resources he required. The two commanders faced Dultaj at the Battle of Daba in the end of November 632. Although the battle initially went badly for the caliphate, a force of local Muslims entered the fray and turned the tide of battle. Dultaj was killed at Daba, and Oman became part of the Rashidun Caliphate once again. Following the Battle of Yamama, Abu Bakr sent the corps of Allah ibn al-Hajrami to Bahrain with the warning that he would be on his own. Al-Hajrami found the apostate forces in an entrenched position, and for the first few days of battle, he made little progress. However, one night, he heard shouts from the rebel positions. Scouts informed him that the apostates were drunk. Al-Hajrami ordered an immediate attack decisively defeating the apostates. By January 633, Bahrain became part of the Rashidun Caliphate once again. Yemen had been one of the first regions to apostatize. Yemen had initially revolted under a false prophet named Aswad, but he was killed when Muhammad was still alive. After Muhammad's death, the people of Yemen revolted again, this time under a leader named Qais ibn Abd Yagus. They attempted to assassinate the Muslim leaders, but Muhammad's appointed governor of Yemen, Pharaohs the Persian, managed to find safe refuge in the hills. For the next six months, thousands of Muslims flocked to Pharaohs' mountain stronghold, and in mid-January 633, the Muslims scored a decisive victory over Qais. Qais fled to Abyan, where he had a kind of falling out with the other apostate chiefs. Viewing their situation as hopeless, they surrendered and were subsequently pardoned by Abu Bakr. The final revolt to be subdued was that of the Kinda tribe, located in eastern Yemen. The local governor was extremely strict when it came to tax collecting, causing discontent among the local population. The Kindid tribe did not revolt until January 633, rather late in the Rida Wars. The Kindid rallied under Ashas ibn Qais, 
a man who came from a noble Kinda family. In late January 633, he was defeated by the Rashidun army, though not decisively, and retreated to the fortified city of Nujair. Since this revolt started late in the Ridda Wars, three Rashidun corps were free to besiege Nujair. The city was captured in mid-February 633, marking the end of the last revolt in the Ridda Wars. In the Islamic calendar, year 12 dawned on March 18, 633, just as peace was returning to the Arabian Peninsula. Arabia was united again, this time under the Rashidun Caliphate and its leader, Abu Bakr. The Muslim victories in the Ridda Wars were Abu Bakr's greatest accomplishments, since if the apostates had won, Islam may have ceased to exist. The Ridda Wars helped establish the powers of the Caliph. Not only did Abu Bakr become a religious leader, but a commander-in-chief. In addition, the Ridda Wars proved that Muslim armies could still win victories even hundreds of miles away from Mecca and Medina, and Muslim armies would travel even further. Because in mid-February 633, Abu Bakr wrote to Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was still in Yamama, ordering him to invade the Sassanid Empire. The Islamic conquests were just getting started.